You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Dr Emma Boland is a physical oceanographer at the British Antarctic Survey and has a particular interest in climate science. Emma speaks to Ellen Dennis about her life and work and gives her views on climate change. This is a chance to listen to a scientist who really understands the environmental problems we face. Over 97% of scientists agree that climate change is real and that we are the cause. And it's extremely serious and it's only getting more serious by the second. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr Emma Boland, who's a physical oceanographer at the British Antarctic Survey. Emma has a particular interest in climate science. Now, the subject of climate change has come up several times recently on Women Making Waves, and we thought it would be interesting to get Emma's perspective on the subject. Well, first, let's hear a little bit about you, Emma. What made you interested in becoming an oceanographer? Well, what is it? (laughs) Well, that's a good question, actually. It's not something that I knew a lot about. In fact, I don't think I knew what an oceanographer was until I started to become one. Initially, if I go back to my school days, the subjects I most enjoyed were physics and maths. And so I decided to go off to university to study physics. In particular, I was really fascinated by particle physics. It seemed to me to be the most exciting kind of area where new discoveries were being made. And then four years later, after a physics degree, actually it turned out what my interests lay elsewhere. And in fact, one of the courses at university that I most enjoyed had been one on atmospheric physics, which kind of combined my love of maths with also a healthy dose of reality. There's always looking out the window to to decide whether what you were trying to understand was realistic. You could make as many computer models as you liked, but you could always look out the window and see reality staring down at you. So that's a kind of weather-based thing then, presumably? Well, the atmospheric science can cover weather, but also is a branch of climate science. So I thought maybe I want to be an atmospheric physicist. So I started to do some research into where I could uh, learn more about that for a PhD. And I landed on the University of Cambridge, which has a group that studies atmospheric and ocean sciences. And when I came to talk to them, they said, well, we don't have any funding to study atmospheric science this year. But if you wanted to do a PhD in ocean science, you'd be more than welcome. Oh, and by the way, you might get to go on a trip to the Southern Ocean. So I thought, yeah, sign me up. I'll be an oceanographer then. (laughs) Is that something you'd been keen to do in the past then, go down to Antarctica? It's not something that I ever saw in my future, but it's just a lucky coincidence that uh, the University of Cambridge is also in the same city as the British Antarctic Survey. Mm-hmm. So the PhD that I went on to study was jointly between the university and the British Antarctic Survey. And obviously it's in the name, the British Antarctic Survey is really interested in all sorts of science that go on in Antarctica and around Antarctica. So an oceanographer is a scientist who studies the ocean, a bit like an atmospheric scientist or a meteorologist might study the atmosphere, but instead of looking at clouds and um, circulation patterns of air, we're looking at the same thing in the ocean. So it's a branch of climate science, but similar to atmospheric scientists, you you can have all sorts of specialities. You can look at oceans of the past, you can look at the ocean now, you can get very specialist about one particular area of the planet, or you can look at how the ocean varies as a whole. So 
as you might guess, my speciality is the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So I'm particularly interested in what's going on there and how that might change in the future. It always makes me smile why the, the British Antarctic Survey is here. You know, we're, we're, you'd think you'd be um, investigating the Northern Hemisphere rather than the Southern Hemisphere, as we're quite close. Yes, and actually, um, we have in fact branched out into the Arctic. We now uh, cover both poles, and our new motto is Polar Science for Planet Earth. Oh. So the specialities that we've developed over the many decades from working in the Antarctic obviously also apply to a lot of the conditions you have in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. And it's purely a kind of historical thing that the British Antarctic Survey spun up from the UK government's expeditions around Antarctica. Uh, That's what we grew from very small expeditions into being this very large organisation. So it's purely historical that we're Antarctic focused. But yes, we can use our expertise in the Arctic as well. Oh, that's interesting. I can detect a bit of an accent coming from you. Are you Scottish? I am. I grew up in Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Until I moved to university, that's where I lived. And did you like it there? I love Edinburgh. I mean, I think quite a lot of the things that I like about Cambridge are quite similar to Edinburgh. Yes, it is. You're right. This nice old architecture. Um, They're both cities, but not too big. Mm -hmm. They're quite easy to get around. They've got lots of nice green space. I do have to say that Cambridge is missing in Edinburgh's drama, I think, in terms of changes in height. I mean, Cambridge is notoriously flat, whereas you just have to turn a corner in Edinburgh and you're getting an amazing view of bridges soaring over a train station or Salisbury Clarags yes. in the horizon. And yeah, that is something I love whenever I go home to visit. You're right. And there's a very similar feel to the people, I think, of Cambridge and Edinburgh. But I'll tell you, there's one thing I don't miss, and that is that cold coming off the Firth of Forth. At least we don't have that here in Cambridge. <laughs> no, it's true. And Cambridge is one of the driest places in the country, although it may not have felt like that over the past few weeks, <laughs> especially. But in general, it can be very pleasant here. I mean, I think that's maybe why we saw the UK's highest temperature uh, on record was recorded here in Cambridge in that's July. That's right. That's right. It was recorded at the um, Botanic, Botanic Gardens. Gardens. Yes. I was. I had my lunch at the Botanic Gardens that very day. It was hot. It was. <laughs> I remember it. I went with my family um, to the Jesus Green Lido and we did not move all day. <laughs> but we did. It, actually, we passed through the Botanic Gardens the next day and we saw that number up on the board. And because I'd been following the news, I I was like, 38.7. I'm pretty sure that's higher than the temperature they were saying in the news. And it turned out, in fact, it was higher. And once they'd verified it, it became the new record. I've got to ask the question, do you believe in climate change and the fact that we're looking at a disaster looming? I have to say I do. And I'm not alone. Over 97% of scientists agree that climate change is real and that we are the cause. And it's extremely serious and it's only getting more serious by the second, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It is slightly terrifying, isn't it, when you start really looking into it? Yeah, there's all sorts of things that will happen and that are happening. I mean, take the forest fires in Australia. Now, forest fires in Australia happen all the time. However, these ones are being made so much worse by the fact that the temperatures for the time of year are extremely high. So that's the kind of theme that we see again and again when we look at what climate science is predicting for us, is that extreme events are going to become even more extreme. So we'll see heat waves that are even hotter. We'll see cold snaps that are very cold. We'll see droughts that extend much longer. And all of these things bring harm to ourselves and harm to the planet. So 
for example, if we're talking about heat waves, you get deaths of the very elderly and the very young. Mm -hmm. As the temperature around us increases, we're going to see the creep of diseases like malaria, which is already making inroads into Europe, where it hasn't been seen for centuries. The ocean, which I care about, is warming as well. We're affecting those ecosystems. We're dependent on those ecosystems for food and we're altering them beyond recognition only a few years ago all it took was a slightly higher temperatures than normal and the coral reef surrounding australia the great barrier reef saw incredible amounts of coral bleaching in some areas over 90 percent of the coral reef was bleached. That means it effectively was killed. All it took was a uh, ocean that that year was a few degrees warmer than normal. And in the past, that wouldn't have caused such an impact. But because the ocean has been slowly warming for the past few decades, though that tipped it over into the point where we had bleaching. And then if we look closer to home, as you said, the Arctic is quite close to us. We've seen melting going on there. It's predicted that the permafrost, so the ground that at the moment is frozen all the year round, will start to melt within a few decades. And then we have the release of methane gas, which is also a potent greenhouse gas, which will make everything worse. Mm -hmm. And you're also destroying the ecosystem for the many, many animals that live there. The list just goes on and on. It really is quite terrifying. It is. How do you feel about people like Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion? Do you think they're doing a good job? I think it's fantastic what they're doing. Um, as a climate scientist, it has felt at some points in the past few decades that we've maybe been shouting into a void. The science has been settled for quite some time now, and yet sometimes it feels like the media, government, the general public aren't really listening. And so I think it's really fantastic that Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion are really are the voice of the people. They're, they're not specialists. They're saying, hang on, why isn't something changing? Things need to change now. And it really is a crisis. The sooner we do something, the easier it will be. The longer we leave it, the worse the problem will be. And so it will be so much harder to reverse. And that's something that we should be doing, is that all the things that we've been hearing about in the press, about eating less meat and travelling less, flying less, all of that kind of thing. Yes, I mean... Climate change isn't one individual person's fault, but there is something that everybody can do to help. And it's things like you mentioned, but it's also um, standing up and saying this is an issue we care about and asking our politicians to listen to us. Now, I'm not going to advocate for any political party, but I would say that make sure that whatever political party you want to vote for, make sure they are listening to the scientists and tell them that you care about it, basically. What's a day... In the life like for you at the British Antarctic Survey, I cannot imagine what goes on behind the uh, the walls of that fantastic looking building. Uh, well, so to start with, I, um, I cycle in to Bass through the city centre. So Bass or the British Antarctic Survey is out in West Cambridge. So I get to cycle through the old city centre, which I like every day. It's a good bit of exercise. And yes, I mean, you get to see the beautiful views. And then it can vary quite a lot day to day. So at the moment, I'm mostly working on a computer model. So I might sit at my desk for a few hours and look at some results from my computer model, make a a figure or a plot to look at. Then I might take it to one of my colleagues and we might sit down and discuss what we think it means and maybe plan what I'll do next. But other days can be very different. For example, last week I went and presented my work to my colleagues at the university and had lots of interesting discussions with them about what they do. But then again, um, in a 
couple of weeks time is going to be Antarctica week so I'm going to be talking to some school children over the phone for an hour um, answering their questions about Antarctica and ocean science and all of that kind of thing. Is that something that you enjoy doing? Oh very much I think I really enjoy the science that I do but it is very um, analytical and it involves sitting at a desk staring at a computer quite a lot so I really enjoy getting involved in other aspects of climate science communication basically because I think it's an important part of what we do is not only to carry out good science but also to make sure that we're communicating that as widely as we can. Yes. Is it something that you would recommend? I mean, there must be lots and lots of teenagers out there really, really involved in the climate change, you know, protests and whatnot, taking days off school. So there must be a lot more children thinking that they might like to do this for a career. Is that something that you would advocate for teenagers? Definitely. I mean, I'd say follow your interests and you'll, you'll you know, you'll, you can't go wrong. I mean, talk to your teachers, Look on the BAS website if you go to www.bass.ac.uk. We've got a whole load of resources for schools and teachers. And if if you're interested, get involved. And yeah, take that where it will. Follow that passion. Um, any kind of earth science at university will stand you in good stead. And like I say, I came from physics. There's people at the British Antarctic Survey from a whole range of backgrounds uh, you don't necessarily have to take the straight path there. It's quite a big organisation, I believe. Yes, we're roughly split 50-50 between scientists, so people like myself who study the Antarctic region, but we have a wide range of disciplines. So there's biologists and ecologists, there's geologists, space scientists, atmospheric scientists. What unites us all is the fact that we study either the uh, Antarctic or the Arctic. And then the other half of our organisation is um, operations, so... We run research vessels. You may have heard of the Sir David Attenborough or <laughs> Boaty McBoatface. Yeah. <laughs> so we recently had the naming ceremony for that uh, vessel. That's uh, soon, hopefully, to be in the water, carrying out great science for us. So we have a whole division of operations who are in charge of running the ship and also running our research bases on Antarctica, some of which are open all year round, so into the deep of the Southern Hemisphere winter when it's completely dark. Um, but then there are several seasonal bases that are open during the Antarctic summer when we can reach them. They run flights to restock and refuel other research cruises they support on other vessels. So yes, it's really a varied, very varied organisation. So if you're a specialist engineer or a doctor or a plumber who fancies spending a season in the Antarctic, there are opportunities for you. It's a fascinating place, certainly. And you said that one of the things that lured you to do your PhD at the British Antarctic Survey was the fact that you might well get to uh, to go down there, did you? Yes, I did. So I can't say I set foot on the Antarctic continent itself, but I went on what oceanographers call a research cruise, although I think that makes it sound like a bit more uh, <laughs> a bit luxurious than it is. <laughs> so you're on a massive research vessel with 20 or 30 scientists and a similar number of crew. To get there, I think it took three flights to get all the way to the very southern point of Chile, to a little town called Punta Arenas. And then we boarded the research vessel there. And then we travelled in for a few days to reach the location where we wanted to study, which was in an area of the Southern Ocean called Drake Passage. So this is notorious for the highest and roughest seas in the world. So you're talking about 100 mile per hour winds or more, waves the size of mountains, and it's just sea as far as you can see, endless 
endless ocean. So luckily I have quite a strong sea stomach, but if you uh yeah, if you get seasick it can be quite miserable. <laughs> and then um and then we get going on the science. So um the as you can imagine a research vessel that large can be quite expensive to run, so we don't ever stop. We're split up into three shifts, so there's always somebody going and we took uh, measurements of the ocean by dropping a piece of equipment over the side that captures uh, seawater from different depths. So we lowered it all the way close to the sea bottom and then bring it back up again, closing off bottles that capture a sample of the seawater at each depth. And then that's brought back up on deck and it's all hands on on deck at that point to take out samples and make measurements. Um, And then there are also other people putting in autonomous vehicles called gliders over the side. So they might launch them over the side of the ship, send them off and then come back to retrieve them a few days later. Then we might go and find some moorings that have been left to take long term measurements and pull those up, take the data off and then put them back in the ocean. And then there's all sorts of other kind of specialist equipment we might deploy. But yes, that goes on. 24 7 until the um, research is done or we might sometimes get a break when the ship is moving between different research positions in the ocean and then that that goes on for some weeks and then it's home again so it is fun Uh, it's it's quite an experience and a lot of people love it and try and go as we call it go south as much as they can go every field season and it's something I really enjoyed but it's definitely hard work. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it. It really does. Did you see any wildlife? Oh, we done, We did. We saw some fantastic albatross, the massive, massive birds that circle the Southern Ocean for most of their lives and very rarely land. We saw lots of them. And on the way back, actually, we passed a sanctuary area where there was pods of whales, which was fantastic. Oh, and if you were very lucky, occasionally some whales would come up near to the ship and somebody would shout, and everyone would have come running, but that was, that was good fun. But um, yes, we saw about three hours of darker day because we were there during the summer. And you have just gone back to work because you've been on maternity leave for the third time, you were telling me. Yes, that's right. You're glutton for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, so maybe, uh, maybe I am. But yeah, uh, it's interesting, actually. You were saying, has that, you know, how's that affected my work? And actually, it's one of those things that, throws some certain things into sharp relief. When you're looking at climate data, what you'll often plot is something called a time series. So you'll look at how something like global ocean temperature or global mean temperature is going to change over time. And quite often those graphs end at around 2100 because that's where quite a lot of our model projections, um, the computer models that we run, finish. So I don't know if what that says to you, but for me... 2100 feels like it might as well be another planet. It's really hard to imagine what life will be like in 2100. But whenever we make these graphs, that's the scary end of the graph. That's where things look really, really bad. And where temperatures are super high and, you know, the Earth is in a complete climate crisis. And then I think my dear old granddad died last winter at the grand old age of 94. If any of my children get to be close to 94, they will be alive in 2100. And that is quite scary. It does bring into sharp relief that these are not just projections that are meaningless. They are actually going to be the reality mm-hmm. for billions of people. And that's quite scary. It is. And that's exactly what people need to get, or scientists need to get across to all of us, don't they? It, it feels like a long way off, but it's not. It's our children when they're old and their children, certainly. Definitely, definitely. And I feel like um, 
there are a lot of good scientists out there um, trying their best to get that out there. And I'm I'm hoping that with the help of people like Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion, that that message is going to get through to the people who can change it. Because, you know, the positive thing about climate change is it is something we really do understand very well. We have decades of research telling us exactly why this is happening. We know why it's happening. It's carbon dioxide entering the atmosphere. We know very many ways that we could stop that. So that's that's all a positive, right? All that we need is the next step, is to start actually taking those actions that will stop stop it going into the atmosphere. Yeah, and and stop people being selfish and starting to think of the world rather than their own tiny little part. Yes, but it does, it's going to take more than individuals. You know, it's going to need country-level action. I mean, it's going to need international action. It's not going to be changed by everyone going vegan, unfortunately, um, even if that were a possibility. It's going to need collective action. But taking taking those steps is definitely helpful. I'm not saying it isn't, but mm-hmm. it's on its own, it's not going to be enough, unfortunately. So you're talking about carbon dioxide. What's the science behind that? Is it complicated? Is it something you can get us to let us understand? It is actually quite simple, and it's something that we've understood as scientists since the 19th century, in fact. So carbon dioxide we commonly call a greenhouse gas. So what does that mean? Well, that means just like the glass in your greenhouse, uh, it allows heat in but traps it. So carbon dioxide particles in the atmosphere allow warmth from the sun to warm up the earth but they trap that warmth and stop it from leaving so it's a bit like if you're throw on a cardigan you're not changing how warm the room is but you will get warmer because you're trapping that heat against your body so just like that cardigan carbon dioxide throws a blanket over our atmosphere and just keeps it warmer but there are also other effects that are more complicated it's by no means completely simple to understand exactly what that will mean but at the heart of it it really is that simple you add more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and the temperature warms and that's something you can actually see um, in the work that we we do at the British Antarctic Survey one of the uh, longest data sets that we have going back in time that links carbon dioxide and temperature comes from uh, some of the ice cores that our scientists at British Antarctic Survey collected so what they do is they ice core scientists go out to antarctica and they find a bit of pristine ice on the antarctic continent and they drill down into it and take out a big long column of ice which we call an ice core and so what's interesting fact about antarctica is that you might not know is it is the world's driest desert in fact one of the world's driest deserts it has very little snowfall so a little snow does fall every year but only a few millimetres. And as you look down your ice core, you're looking back in time at previous year's snowfall that's been compacted over time into ice. So the deeper you go along your ice core, the further back in time you're looking. And you can tie that to time by looking for things like dust from volcanic eruptions. And also right near the surface, it is just as simple as counting the layers. And so what we can do is we take those ice cores back to our lab here in Cambridge and the ice cores can tell us two things. If we melt down the water, the, looking at how the water is chemically composed can tell us what the temperature was like when that snow fell. But also, when the snow fell, it captures tiny bubbles of air. So uh, you can actually see these when you cut up your um, ice core into discs. You can hold them up to the light and you see those bubbles of air that have been trapped. That's air from 
hundreds of thousands of years ago. Wow. So then, actually, if you hold, I, I sometimes do this when I go and uh, meet people and talk about climate change. If I, you take some of these pieces of ice and you hold it in your hand, the warmth of your hand starts to melt the ice and you can feel those bubbles popping in your hand and you can actually hear them a bit like listening to your Rice Krispies. Mm. So actually, in the lab, we can capture that air as it pops out of the bubbles and measure the carbon dioxide directly in the air. So we can say hundreds of thousands of years ago, how much carbon dioxide was in the atmosphere? And then we've got the information from the melted ice, the melted snow, that tells us what the temperature was. And then you have a really, really, really clear matched pattern going back 800,000 years, almost a million years, showing that when carbon dioxide is high, temperature is high. When carbon dioxide is low, temperature is low. And so the theory of the greenhouse gas effect is backed up by this data. And the other scary thing is you can see that in the past 800,000 years, carbon dioxide has never, ever been anywhere near as high in the atmosphere as it is today. We oh, are wow. far beyond anything we've seen for a million years. So if we're talking about life on planet Earth, yes, the planet will survive. But life as we know it, civilization, the whole ecosystem of planet Earth is going to be really incredibly different if we let carbon dioxide continue to rise if we don't do something about it and it's as simple as that really yes <laughs> is she <laughs> <laughs> well i think scientists in the year 2100 are going to be really really thankful to you and your other scientists because they're going to have a massive body of work to look back over well i really hope so you can only do chip away at your little corner of uh, science and hope that it's uh, of use one day Thank you very much indeed, Dr Emma Boland, for joining us today. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Linda. That was Dr Emma Boland talking to Linda Ness. Very, very topical subject, of course, Mm. climate change. So I found that conversation extremely interesting because we've got there a scientist who's telling us about climate change, not and with with the greatest of respect, not someone who's just reading things and getting really upset about it, which I totally admire as well, by the way. And and people that go out and protest totally admire this. But this is a scientist who actually knows what she's talking about. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, it was really, really good. And actually, I thought Linda really informative. There were lots of things that I didn't particularly understand that I thought Emma really, really got on top of that. And I didn't realise that the Antarctic is is the driest. They say it's the driest desert. Des- yes. Desert. 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 <laughs> That'd be quite tasty. Yeah, it would actually, it? wouldn't mm, it? But no. lovely, mm. <laughs> the, the driest desert ever. Yeah. And little snowfall. Yes. yes. Yeah. And Isn't that's it? how they get to analyse all the layers of snow that arrive and and they take as you say take big blocks big cores yeah. Yeah. i think they, they drill down and get big cores of ice and it's like like the rings on a tree they can tell the ages and and also by other factors as well like when there were volcanic eruptions and things like that mm. but yeah fascinating it was fascinating, fascinating stuff yeah and i really love the way you refer to greta tenberg and extinction rebellion because yeah. the media have this thing about making us feel that it's a myth or they they they're trying to get I a media know. thing about it but she backed it up yes and i that think there's been so a lot of bashing about what's going on 
with Extinction Rebellion. And I think it is really interesting that, well, she was saying 90% of, of scientists are in agreement with this and glad that people are now catching on. As she said, we, we've been banging on about this for years and years mm. and feeling that nobody's really taking it seriously and nobody's listening. And suddenly everybody is. So I think for them, this is a big win, as it should be, because suddenly people are realising what's actually going on. Very, very enlightening and just the kind of conversation that we need to have at the moment. You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. 